Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Welcome to the first episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast Symposium on Local Journalism, Business, and Society. This episode will focus on a recently published study, Local Journalism Under Private Equity Ownership, which was written by Michael Ewens of Caltech and Arpit Gupta and Sabrina Howe, both of NYU Stern School of Business. I'll link to the paper in the show notes for the episode. Michael Ewens is joining us today to discuss the paper, and we're also joined by commentators Renell Anderson-Jones, a law professor at the University of Utah, and Steve Waldman, the president and co-founder of Report for America. Michael, Renell, Steve, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Great to be here. Thanks. Michael, I'd like to start this conversation with maybe a discussion with you about uh, some of the highlights of the paper. I wondered if you could introduce the research questions that you and your co-authors asked. What motivated you to study the effects of private equity ownership on local news? And what policy or maybe social debates or issues are you hoping to inform with this paper? The big research question is asking if and how the ownership of local daily newspapers in the United States is impacted by private equity ownership specifically. And in turn, once we, as we'll talk about, document how things change after that ownership starts, how that ownership change and the change in newspapers impacts real outcomes like political activity of local citizens. In terms of why we're interested, this is actually a paper in a broader literature that's trying to understand the role of private equity across many industries. The news on that front is mixed, but overall, the evidence suggests that private equity investors, when they enter average industry, they tend to try to both cut costs and increase revenues. This manifests often as a lower employment level, but typically the companies or firms are more productive afterwards. And in turn, there are some real outcomes across multiple industries like restaurants, oil and gas, nursing homes, and healthcare. And so what we thought was, given the last, I don't know, let's say decade or so, a pretty clear understanding that the media is changing and the media's role in politics and society as a whole is real. I don't know, it just seems to be more apparent than it was in the past, that this would be a great opportunity to explore private equity in this industry. On top of that, there's been lots of news <laughs> that private equity has increased its ownership stake in the industry as a whole, both in newspapers and other media. And so we thought those were sort of two good reasons to look here. And of course, we've, we had some work to do, but overall, that's what we did it. The last piece about society and social debates, for us, we thought of it more as a testable hypothesis. So what role does the media, and in our case, local papers play in how informed the citizenry is, and in turn, how that information can impact their choices about voting and voting participation specifically. With that, we thought we could tie all of this together, understanding sort of the finance question, what does PE do and specifically in newspapers? And then the other end, given they do stuff, how does that impact outcomes we care about like politics? I'd like to talk about some of your research strategies and conclusions in a minute, but 
might be good to start with maybe what the PE playbook here is. Could you maybe walk us through what the private equity industry is doing in the local newspaper space? What's attracting PE firms to these particular businesses? Is there any sort of commonality between that and other industries that PE is active in? And how might the PE model change how local newspapers do business? You mentioned maybe cost reductions or reductions in employment. What's the overall impact that we might imagine the PE model having on day-to-day news production and running a, a local newspaper? I think it's useful to step back and ask, how does the private equity model work in any industry? When I talk about private equity and most academics, I think as well, we think of an entity that goes out and raises money from large institutions. Let's think pension funds and insurance companies. And they're tasked for the next 10 to 15 years to invest that money in companies. So Venture capital is another form of private equity that makes minority investments in high growth startups. The rest of private equity, like we're going to study here, typically takes over a company and what I'll call reorganizes it or maybe fixes it, at least from the perspective of the investor. Now, the key thing here is that the private equity investor's goal is to effectively buy low and sell high. Now, how do you do that? There's lots of ways to do it. For private equity, this is typically operational changes or financial engineering. In my view, From what I know about newspapers, both before and after, it's not obvious that financial engineering is going to be a a big problem for this asset class. And why not? If you look at large manufacturing firms or other industries, many of these firms have the wrong mix of debt and equity. So some cases, they don't have enough debt on the books and they're not taking advantage of the tax code or the incentive structures that come from being having a certain amount of leverage aren't optimal. I don't think that's what's going on in the newspaper industry. So we have to believe that if private equity investors are doing their job, then they're probably making some form of operational changes. So what could those be in newspapers? Well, I think it's important to step back and also say what was going on in the world from 2000 to 2020. And in the media space specifically, there's been a growth of the internet, introduction of things like Craigslist, and the changing, I would say, competitive landscape of news production overall. So Facebook, the social networks overall. In that environment, private equity could, in principle, step in and facilitate change at newspapers or other media firms in many ways. And so one other thing to keep in mind is what private equity does is not just come in and fire people, but they do some of that in other industries. What they also do is they realign incentives. So in other industries, they'll take over a company and the CEO, the CFO, and other top managers those that remain, will be given very strong equity stakes in the firm. So they'll be given very strong incentives to maximize the value of the company. That often works in situations where firms need to make major changes and reorganize. And private equity is just good at that. Now, whether it's socially good, (laughs) that is a harder question to answer. For newspapers, why they might care, I think these big secular trends in competition for news production, the growth of the internet, and changing revenue sources. So Craigslist basically destroying the classified ad space and print going away towards the internet and thus changing the the mix of advertising, which is, of course, another important source of revenue. This might be an ideal space for this financial and operational model of private equity. And And in some sense, it's a testable thing. I don't know exactly why they went in. And how they could change it, it really depends, before looking at the data, because how could they change the local newspaper how they do business. For example, if these trends are not going anywhere, the internet is going to supplant at least part of this industry and how people consume news, then private equity could be a very 
aggressive way to shift strategy of newspaper businesses who have 100, 150 years of print and daily delivery, shifting that model, which is a technological change, a revenue model change, and even a, a staffing change, right? Like the kind of talent you need. And so that is in principle what they could do. And that's what we sought to test. Turning back to your research questions, I wonder if you could talk about the study design, the identification strategy that you and your co-authors used. What data did you use in the study? How did you collect it? Sure. Let's start with the data. At a real high level, what we needed to observe was the daily U.S. newspapers every year, their operations, some sense of who they're hiring, who's being fired as well, and then also their production. So what kind of news is being produced? And so we took advantage of, we're lucky that there's a census of daily newspapers provided by editor and publisher. They provided an annual booklet that was in almost all U.S. libraries for a while. Found all the old ones on eBay. Lots of work went into basically scanning them and making them digital. And then we created a year-by-year census of newspapers. And in particular, who owns them? So it's called the parent group. Is the parent group new media? Is the parent Gannett? And then classifying that parent group's type. So is it a family? Is it a private company? Is it owned by a private equity firm? Things like that. So that's one big part of the data. We brought to that other information like LinkedIn. So who works at the newspaper as a reporter or as an editor, for example. We also collected news production. So the text of the print news that we could get that was created online as well. Those are the major variables that we collected. So our goal was to ask, let's think ideally what would happen is we'd ideally just change the ownership structure of a newspaper. You just pick one and we'd say, you are now owned by a private equity firm. And then we track what happens to employment, to news production, Oh, and to survival, how likely is the company to survive? And then we'd compare that to, because we did it randomly, we'd compare it to another newspaper, let's say, nearby in the same year. Of course, private equity investors do not randomize how the investing targets, newspapers in this case. And so what we did instead was we tried to find a way to compare private equity papers to similar papers in the same year and controlling for lots of things that we can see in the data. We are not going to perfectly control for the fact that these private equity investors are responding to things that we don't see as a researcher. For example, maybe some shock to the specific newspaper that private equity is ideally suited to fix. But we do think that we are addressing as many of the observable things to deal with that. So let me give you an example. For employment, we're going to track 20 years of employment at a paper. We're going to identify the date that a private equity owner steps into the paper. And then we're going to compare the change in employment at that paper to all other papers in the same years that weren't owned by the private equity investor. That difference in those differences will give us the impact of private equity. It's all relative to this peer group. I'd like to maybe delve into some of the the key findings of the study. What impacts did you find, if any, on news production in terms of either the volume of news production or the topics that are covered? And what impact did you see in maybe employment at these papers or the broader market for journalists? If we want to walk through how this works, so we've got a private equity owner steps in, buys a parent group, let's say, and that parent group owns five to six papers. We can first ask what happens to survival. One possibility is that private equity steps in and buys up all the assets and sells the fancy downtown building and the printing press and then extracts that and then shuts the paper down. Alternatively, they might step in and 
reorganize the company and trying to help it survive at least a little bit longer. And so we can track that survivorship. And what we find is that private equity actually correlates with relatively higher survival of these newspapers compared to their peers in the same year, which suggests some mechanism by which they're at least reorganizing in ways that are helping the firm make it through five to six more years of survival. Uh, In terms of news production, what we study is how likely it is the paper that's owned by the private equity firm reports local versus national news. The way we do this is basically keywords. So keywords that are very local would be something like city hall, city council, mayor, state senate, zoning, planning board, things like that. And things during our sample period that were very national would be Obama, Trump, things like that. What we found was the level of news production in private equity papers falls. So the total number of articles, both local and national, is falling. But the national news is falling at a slower rate than the local. What it appears to be going on is that the private equity ownership shifts the internal resources away from local news production towards national news production. And these are, they're not huge effects, but they're economically meaningful. And then I guess the there's lots of other results in the paper, but I will highlight another one that I think is quite important, which is employment. How is this local news production working? My understanding of most local newspapers is that reporters are boots on the ground to go talk to the mayor, to go to city council meetings, to go to press conferences at the DA. Maybe what's happening is there are fewer of these reporters around to do that work. And reporters cost money, they're expensive. So indeed, that's what we find is that In private equity-owned newspapers, there is a decline in reporters and actually editors as well relative to the non-private equity papers in similar years, which is consistent with them shifting the local news production via changes in employment. My next question, I think, transitions us a little bit to the commentary from Rennell Anderson-Jones and Steve Waldman, but I wondered if you could give your thoughts about some of the social welfare implications of this study. What might this study mean or imply for public policy, society, maybe even democracy itself? That last uh, bit is is big, and I'm not sure I'll be able to answer that, but I'll try to get part of the way there. I think it's important to highlight one other change for this transition, which is while local news falls and national news increases, a certain kind of circulation does seem to go up. I think this is going to be important for how people are consuming information. Private equity ownership is also correlated with an increase in digital subscriptions, paid subscriptions, compared to non-private equity papers. So what appears going on is these private equity papers are changing the way news is produced and how it's delivered. Now, delivery of news from print versus digital, of course, is a different way of consuming news as well. And so what we had a hypothesis about was whether the local citizenry that's reading the local news be it print or digital, are learning about their local politicians, local issues at the state and, let's say, county or city level. If you believe that the local media matters for this, that the citizens learn about problems, learn about the what the incumbents or those in power are doing, both good and bad, that this could have real impacts on their knowledge about those people, of course, but also on their activity. And so what we explored first, whether the local population has an opinion about national figures versus local figures. Local figure would be someone like a a House of Representatives. There are surveys done about, do you know the name, essentially, of your House of Representatives? Or do you know who the president is? Or do you have an opinion of these people? And after private equity ownership occurs in a county, compared to counties that don't have private equity ownership, the likelihood a person in that county says, 
I have no opinion of my House of Representatives, that actually increases. While at the same time, there's no change in the no opinion response for presidential or governor level things. And this is consistent with the fact that they're using their local news, be it print or digital, to learn about the quality or actions of their local politicians. Now, we can't prove that connection, but it is at least consistent with the story that local media plays a really important role in forming the populace. Finally, this no opinion piece difference between national and local does show up in political activity at the county council level and at the mayoral level. So what we explore is a similar strategy as we say, compared to before private equity, how does a county's political activity change after the private equity owner steps in? What we find is total votes fall and turnout falls. So as a proportion of registered voters in the private equity owned counties. Now this works for us quite well because typically a local daily newspaper, there's outside of LA and other big cities, there's typically one daily newspaper. And so if a private equity owner owns the daily newspaper, that is a very important source of information for the local populace. So these two results, the no opinion of local politician and the declining political participation does suggest, one, that local news matters a lot, and two, that private equity's means of changing the local news has the real outcome on political participation and House of Representatives, for example, opinions. Michael, I'd like to thank you for a great discussion on a great paper, and I'm excited to get some commentary from Ronell Anderson-Jones, who's serving as our academic commentator, and then by Steve Waldman, who is filling the practitioner advocate policy commentary slot. I might start with maybe inviting Ronell to offer her thoughts. Ronell, I wonder if you might offer some of your thoughts and, and maybe introduce your interest in this issue of local journalism. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Andrew. And thanks so much, Michael, for this fantastic piece of research. It's just impressive in its scope and its detail and its nuance. And it's important for so many reasons. And I think sure to be really generative for people in a lot of different fields. As a constitutional law First Amendment scholar with an emphasis on press freedom and the role of the press function in a democracy, I have a a keen interest in the trends that you're exploring, but I come at them from a very different vantage point. So I'm hoping that I can offer up some responses that folks in my space might have on the broader weighing of values through a constitutional law and democracy preservation lens. And also perhaps when we turn to some panel discussion and tee up some questions that people in my field who are observers of the space but outsiders to your area might have. Okay, so first, some thoughts from my crowd to yours on the scope and importance of the consequences and effects on civic engagement that you report here, that bridge that we just discussed. Your paper gives us I guess what we might characterize as crudely the upsides and downsides of private equity buyout, the higher survival rates and increased digital content on the one hand, and the hits to civic engagement on the other. And understandably, I'm having pulled such a heavy laboring or in quantifying the empirical answers on both sides of this equation that it's outside the scope of the project to sort of quantify those opposing forces. But because my work as a legal scholar focuses heavily on the role of the press function in sustaining an operable democracy, I think primarily a about those constitutional costs. And in particular, much of my recent work has considered the ways that the loss of that press function, that constitutional press function, has imperiled us. What the loss of reporters and editors means, not just for coverage of particular content areas, which you've so incredibly helpfully quantified for us, 
but for the richness of public discourse and the sustainability of a cohesive republic, which your data also gets us some really important distance towards understanding. And I just want to maybe for a second here widen the aperture for a bit and talk about what we really lose here. If we lose a trusted local press function, we lose our anchor in objective, provable fact. Increasingly, our most consequential conversations now lack a shared baseline of trusted objective truth. And really, even as to matters that are plainly national in scale, let's say issues of public health or discussions of election integrity, it mattered that we once had conversation about national issues that revolved around local voices, these common connections. Levels of trust in local journalism were once incredibly high. And importantly, even when the press appears to be essentially passing along others' facts, it's not engaged in mere conduit behavior because it traditionally checks those facts, an investigative and corrective function that builds reliance and gives a shared starting point to the harder conversations about what to do about the facts. And when we lose those key trusted gatekeepers, we lose more than the coverage. We lose the structure that holds together our collective decision making. Also, if we lose a trusted press function, we lose the immense value of institutional contextualizing. Local press go beyond informing readers to interpreting on behalf of readers, placing news stories in context locally or over time. And we rely, again, as citizens in a functional democracy on the local press to provide that context and to reveal that impact, exposing the story behind the story and illuminating the nuances beyond the facts. Press scholar David Anderson has noted that when the press reports a piece of information and then contextualizes it. For example, it was the fourth murder in the neighborhood this year, or a study by another group of scientists reached a different conclusion, or um, this was a third consecutive quarter of employment gains. It's playing the role that the founders envisioned for the American free press, that they envisioned this role because they knew that shared self-governance is nearly impossible without it. And relatedly, if we lose a trusted press function, we lose education that is central to the operation of a democracy. The press is giving local citizens knowledge about a wide variety of topics that they would never experience directly. And the Supreme Court pretty consistently has this mantra that the press function is essentially to help people form opinions and make intelligent, informed choices. And the data in this study goes a great distance in illuminating how very much of that civic education we lose when the boots on the ground disappear. And on top of this, and perhaps most critically in our current information climate, if we lose a trusted press function, we lose an entity that can set conversational agendas and can foreground matters of real importance. The press creates communities in which democratic dialogue can occur. And without some core of shared information or common purposes, there can't be meaningful discussion of public issues. So when the press brings its expertise and its judgment to bear in sifting the newsworthy information from that which is not, it structures that public discussion and builds community discourse by starting conversations and by contributing carefully sifted, useful information as those conversations continue. And prioritizing the focus of our conversations matters to democracy preservation. Local press help us assign value and importance to information, um, know what's going on, but also know, you know how much it matters. And we have uh, limited time and resources, but we also have limited mental capacity and knowledge about the relative significance or magnitude of a piece of news. And we need a trusted press function to fill that gap. We cannot operate a healthy democracy without it. Finally, and I was so grateful for the nuance and insight that your study added on this particular front, if we lose a trusted press function, we lose proxies who 
act as our eyes and ears and who watchdog our government in accountability enhancing ways. And this more than anything, I think is the reason that moving from the reportage that we once got from local news to the bare repeatage that we have in the new private equity dynamics may be unsustainably damaging to democratic norms. A properly functioning press acts as our proxy by representing us in conversations with sources, right? holding those conversations on our behalf and asking the questions that we need to have answered. They go where it would be difficult for individual citizens to go and speak to people who individual citizens would have difficulty finding and accessing. They invoke on our behalf all of the rights of access through open meetings and open records laws and constitutional rights of access that we technically could invoke ourselves, but we don't have the time or energy or concentrated enough interest to consistently invoke. And Azure Data helps us see local leaders know that these meetings and records will not be accessed once the severe cutbacks described in this paper occur, leaving them free to engage in behavior that they wouldn't engage in if they were watched by our trusted press partners. And Azure Studies commentary on spillover effects made clear, local newspaper reporting has itself long been the tap from which other repeatage flows. So when we lose it, we don't just lose what the local newspaper readers might have read, we lose what the local TV and radio stations would have then picked up and reiterated, and we lose any meaningful local content that can then be more broadly distributed by locals themselves via social media or otherwise. Just reduced to cat pictures and memes and conspiracy theories from irritated uncles are downstream losses to meaningful public discourse. Now, I know there's going to be ongoing conversation that springs from your work, and this question of the trade-offs between newspaper survival rates and digital content on the one hand and abandonment of local coverage mandates and the accompanying civic engagement measures on the other will be really big, important pieces of that dialogue. And I'm so grateful to all of you for teeing it up in a way that can make it concrete and digestible. And I really hope that our vision of what is lost will be broad enough to capture the relationship between the press function and the fragility of our democratic system, especially at this moment that it faces so many other strains. And as between the radically scaled back version of this function and no function at all, it may well be that in light of your nuanced findings, we have to debate much more carefully about costs and benefits. But this isn't just about wanting to have our cake and eat it too. It's about a democratic imperative. I'm so glad that we're joined by Steve, who is really the top thinker in the country in the solution space on this, and really look forward to his contributions about best paths forward. But thanks again, um, Andrew, for the chance to, to chime in. And thanks, Michael, and your team for this remarkable work. Thank you so much, Renelle, for that commentary, especially coming from the constitutional press freedom perspective. I'm also excited, again, as Rennell introduced Steve a little bit, really excited to have Steve Waldman, founder and CEO of Report for America, join us as well uh, to offer his commentary from a practitioner, an advocacy, a policy perspective. Steve, if you'd like to take the floor. Thank you for having me. This is a really important study. I've, I felt like the acquisition of hundreds of newspapers by private equity and also hedge funds in the last decade has been the most under-discussed and understudied phenomenon in the local news space right now. And this is just a the most thorough, consequential study about this. And I think that the if you look at it from the perspective of what is in the interest of 
the companies of the newspapers or the newspaper groups, you have this mixed back. If you look at it from the perspective of the community, then I think it's a much more negative picture proven or demonstrated in this study. Let's take them one by one. There's both the decline in local coverage and local reporting and related to that, a shift to national news. They're very much related, but they also have different consequences. So the decline of local news has all sorts of negative civic impacts as Ronell you laid out beautifully the consequences for communities and the consequences in the terms of how the founding fathers viewed the role of the press are severe. And in addition to the consequences that Michael's study showed about knowledge of local issues and voter turnout, there have been a bunch of other studies that have looked at the consequences of local news in the last few years that have shown similar things. Among the other effects that have been demonstrated in addition to lower voter turnout and lower knowledge of candidates, there are fewer candidates who run for office. There is less likely that the member of Congress will testify before a committee an issue related to the district. Lower bond ratings, more corruption, more pollution more corporate crime. So these are all effects that come from the, essentially the contraction of the accountability function that Ronell was talking about. And so you have a very severe effect on communities and to be more lofty about it on democracy, on essentially the ability of a community to solve its own problems which is a less less lofty way of talking about democracy, is severely undermined. Now, there's, a, there's another effect, which is that studies have also shown that the shift to national news increases polarization. So the loss of the local news in this case is not only hurting the accountability function, it's also exacerbating this nationalization of news, which is a key part of fueling polarization. Certainly not the only factor, but definitely an important one. So that is an additional negative that you have as a result of this less reporting. So what do you do about this, especially given the tension of the fact that in some cases, even though the function for democracy or communities is severely degraded, but it may be that the newspapers are less likely to close. So what do you do about that choice between a degraded function and closing and my answer is you reject that as the only choice. And you say, this is where public policy and the nonprofit sector comes in. It could be that the private equity funds are operating completely rationally and within the context of the you know core fundamental problems of the business model, maybe they're doing the smart thing. So when you have a situation where private actors are doing the taking steps that have an internal logic to it, and yet have this profound negative effect on society, well, that's when public policy and the nonprofit sector, the philanthropic sector should come in and say, okay, we get that. That makes sense. We're not saying you're bad people. We're just saying that the dynamic that is underway here is not good for America. So what are we going to do about it? For instance, as a concrete example, the reason that there is often a choice between the only choice appears to be private equity versus closing is for one thing, there's no 
system of helping community groups to acquire newspapers. So if you're a local newspaper chain, and I've heard about this over and over again, that doesn't actually particularly want to sell to private equity, but that's the only choice they have. So they do. If they had the opportunity to do sell or in effect replant their newspaper into either a local buyer group or a nonprofit organization or a community foundation, then they oftentimes would. And that would have a better benefit for the community in many cases. And you can achieve that through public policy or through philanthropy. I feel like the consequence of this study is to say we should look at this not only in terms of what it means about corporate behavior, but also what are the implications of that for public policy and the approaches of the nonprofit sector to ameliorate the harms that are coming about as a result of some of these trends. So why don't I stop there? I think that's, as I said, I think it's a really very important study because it really clarifies what the pros and cons are and where we're headed. And by the way, I think that it's probably going to continue down that road. The, the definition that Michael's crew used in the study appropriately for private equity did not include Alden Global Capital, which is a hedge fund. But by that definition, if you included Alden Global Capital, I suspect that the trends that Michael found would be even worse. Because from what we've seen anecdotally, Alden is on the far end of the spectrum of these behaviors of cutting back reporting and local news even more severely. And indeed, they raise a slightly different question, which is under, as Michael said, normal behavior is buy low, sell high. Is you acquire the newspapers at a low price and then make them perform better in the hope that you can sell them at a higher price. In the case, at least, of some of these papers, at least the ones I've looked at with Alden, they seem to be approaching it with not with the buy low, sell high strategy, but with a kind of cash extraction strategy, which means that there's an internal logic to you buy a paper, you cut costs as deeply as you can because you can realize the savings from that cost cutting right away and the harm to revenue is delayed. You can either maintain or slow the growth, or in some cases, grow the level of subscriptions in the short run while you're cutting back. So they may end up having a perfectly legitimate business model for their investors and yet end up not selling the newspapers at the end of the day. They may end up closing them down because there's not much left there. So that's a, I, I don't think that's the case necessarily with the private equity funds, but we know that is a possible scenario for at least one of the hedge funds. So why don't I stop there? And again, thank you both to Michael and Ronald for, for, well, for the study in this first case and for that excellent analysis in the letter. Thank you, Steve. And, and thank you to all of the panelists for what has already been a great discussion and a very illuminating discussion. I thought I would turn it over now to the panelists to pose questions or thoughts for each other. And Michael, I, I might give you the first stab at it in terms of if there's any response that you would like to offer to your co-panelists or if there are questions or thoughts you'd like to pose to them. Michael? Thanks to you both for great comments. I think these two different but related perspectives help me frame both our motivation and our results. And I think I need to sit back and think about how we could incorporate this into an updated draft. Big picture, this, I think the, the things that really hit me were this idea of this trusted local press function tied to the community versus the company view. And I think it's important to keep in mind that as a finance professor and a researcher trying to publish in this area, this paper does 
take a primarily company view. So we put our PE hat on, but we tried to speak to the public good provision, this trusted local press function. And so I guess a question I have, and I think Steve alluded to public policy, but I guess, Rennell, what kind of actions are possible either by the government, local or national to fill this gap? Or is it a potential function to regulate ownership types or actions given the public goods that are produced by these local media? I think you're asking a really important and emerging question and one that um, people in my space and certainly people in Steve's space are starting to think about with so much more clarity than they were even a couple of years ago. And there are now on the table meaningful discussions and dialogue about large-scale governmental subsidies, viewing the local press function as a public good and subsidizing it in significant ways. Steve can probably speak. Steve is so much more key a player in uh, the Journalism Sustainability Act and other provisions that are floating in this space. But there are also strong academic voices now that I wouldn't have expected a few years ago advocating for things like something closer to a BBC model where government more expressly sustains these sorts of functions. And I think a lot of those proposals are on deck in ways that are hoping to break outside having to think only about what a commercial capital model has delivered on this front. And that's wildly outside the scope of trying to think about how to make the private equity model work for us. But may overlap in some interesting ways, right? If incentive structures existed to try to goose incentives in one direction or another, it may well shift the balance of some of the things that you're looking at through the PE lens. But I'm guessing Steve has more concrete thoughts about how. It's a great question right now. I think that I look at it as two tracks. One is public policy or philanthropy that can help create a healthier local news system in general, including both nonprofit news organizations or startups. There have been about 300 new nonprofit local news organizations that have been started in the last decade, and they're small and they're relatively frail, but so were the public radio stations before the 1967 Public Broadcasting Act. That could become a more important part of the system, which could have a few effects on the private equity-owned newspapers. For one thing, it might just ameliorate the damage and say, okay, they're cutting back here, but we've got accountability reporting over there, so at least the community is served. But some of the other public policies would potentially generally strengthen local news in both the nonprofit and for-profit sectors in ways that could ripple through this. So, for instance, as Renell mentioned, there's something called the Local Journalism Sustainability Act which is the approach that I favor and the chair a coalition called the Rebuild Local News Coalition, which is about 20 different national groups representing local news organizations advocating for public policy. And this bill is interesting because it's a little bit of a different approach than we've taken. It's not give money to the Corporation for Public Broadcasting to give grants to news organizations. It's a tax credit system where you would provide first payroll tax credits to the local news organizations that hire and retain local reporters. Secondly, a tax credit for small businesses that advertise or underwrite with local news. And third, a tax credit for consumers who buy subscriptions or donate to local news. And it's trying to strengthen the business models 
of those entities. So that could ripple through in a number of ways. One is that if the floor were raised and there were more healthy local news organizations, they would in some cases be less likely to need to sell to private equity or the price would be higher to sell to private equity, which might lead private equity to be less interested in it. Or it could enable startups to come in and provide alternatives. I think that in the specific case of newspapers that are already owned by private equity, though, I think there's a few other things that we should be looking at. One would be a different kind of public policy strategy that I would say is about what the term I like to use is replanting. And it's just that I like the metaphor because a plant that is in toxic soil, if you pull it out of that soil and put it in some healthier soil and give it fertilizer, can sometimes thrive. And newspapers that are potentially planted in community organizations at a different ownership structure may be able to succeed. And you can use tax credits on both the seller side and the buyer side to do that. And then I think the final public policy question has to do with antitrust. There are instances where it may be that mergers are in the interest of the company or both companies in a merger transaction. And yet antitrust law says that sometimes those should be blocked anyway. If there are harms to competition or harms to community. And I think that's a whole area that we need to be looking at much more carefully. It's a little bit weird in this case, because in a lot of cases, there's not an antitrust harm in the traditional sense. Most times there's one newspaper before the PE firm buys it, and there's one newspaper after the PE firm buys it. It doesn't lead to newspapers competing with each other, but it does lead to harms to the community. And so it would require a little bit of a different approach to antitrust law. And this gets into a whole bigger debate about between the Chicago school that you know, has argued and has been the dominant view that you should only look at kind of financial harms to the consumer and others, including the current new chair of the Federal Trade Commission, who argue that actually that's too narrow a perspective. And if you look at the original purposes of the antitrust laws, they did envision looking at harms to the community as legitimate factors to consider. So I think that's a new front on this uh, battle or on this discussion is whether or not antitrust policy ought to be paying attention to zones. And Steve, or and I guess Steve and Michael, Steve, are there any meaningful debates happening about whether federal governmental efforts to revive or sustain local journalism should carry caveats on ownership model? And I guess I'm really interested in hearing from Michael about whether he thinks that would be based on the data that he has here, whether thinking creatively about the ways that legislative solutions should map onto the consequences that um, we think or we see empirically come about from various models, or whether those are things that are being taken into account. It's a great question. I would love to hear Michael's view on that. I'll tell you what I've heard. So when I was very involved in rewriting the Local Journalism Sustainability Act and there were various, what ended up being in the Build Back Better bill that passed the House and almost passed the Senate was one portion of it was the payroll tax credit, but also all sorts of definitions were changed. And there was discussion during that of, hey, should we make it so that firms that are owned by private equity or hedge funds should not be eligible? And it was basically decided 
that it would be very hard to do that it's a spectrum of different types of ownership. There's private equity owned, there's hedge fund owned, there's great big public chains that have some of the same behaviors, but aren't private equity owned, but are private equity influenced. There's all of the above that have no debt and all of the above that have massive amounts of debt that seems to influence. And that generally speaking, at least people in the congressional offices felt like it is either inappropriate or impossible practically to do that kind of line drawing. I think it's a good conversation to have. I argued in a, some comments that we just submitted to the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice for their inquiry about antitrust, that looking at PE ownership was a legitimate factor for antitrust consideration. Difficult to do again, but I felt like in that context, there was more of a case for looking at it through that lens. What do you think, Michael? Ooh. So I'm uh, not an expert <laughs> on this part of policymaking, but I'll say first, <clears throat> I'm not surprised that it was difficult to implement carve-outs for PE because for just the point that Steve made is that in our study, just identifying whether your PE backed was really challenging because even the definition of private equity is fuzzy. But I think the other issue is that if we believe that these local papers and other local media organizations are playing a really important role of local news production, it's hard to imagine that local governments, let's say the alternative to federal would be state, it's, it's hard to imagine that the states are going to, I don't know, be unbiased in the way they might build a subsidy or support program for local media. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is a federal government, a sort of umbrella policy is probably the best approach, given the way we think these news media organizations provide value to their local citizenry. Overall, I think what this highlights is that the paper, if you just ignore the private equity piece for a second, documenting that plausibly exogenous random changes to local newspapers in terms of news production and reporters has real consequences for outcomes like political knowledge and political activity. It shows that is the case and in turn allows us to understand or ask questions about policy that we've talked about. And I think given the local media is apparently playing a pretty big role in these two things, opinions of local representatives and news activity, regulation or support is important. But I think Steve highlighted this as well. Finding ways for the market to fill this gap, in my view, always a better approach. It's a little bit of a Chicago view, but I think it's a better approach because it's sustainable. Because the problem with regulation and policy is we, because it's so fuzzy, it ends up picking winners. And companies are really good at finding ways to oh, this is a reporter, trust me, or this is news production, trust me. But if the market can satisfy what we think is local news demand, then I think that's a more sustainable approach. Yeah, that's my last thought. All right, before we close this discussion, I'd like to just invite the panelists to offer any closing thoughts or, or questions for future discussion that they'd like to offer. Uh, I'll chime in. I am so grateful that there are people in the space that Michael and his colleagues are in who are thinking about this in concrete terms and who are offering up to us empirical data that helps us see what comes of these sorts of choices and remove a layer of fuzzy hysteria that surrounds it and instead helps us think in terms of the gains and the losses that occur when these ownership models take over. And now that they're in that space, I, I, there's all sorts of data that I crave from them. I've done all sorts of future projects that I'm hoping that they produce for us. Most notably, just to echo back to something that Steve said earlier, I would love to know 
know more about what happens with hedge funds. And in particular, I think everybody's really interested in Alden, which is a name that has become almost synonymous with the conventional wisdom about chewing up local newspapers and spitting them out and generated incredibly sour news coverage and accusations of bleeding newspaper staffs and resources and driving them into bankruptcy and selling them off for parts and in intentionally cutting costs to the bone to maximize those short-term returns. So I think a lot of people who come at this from the communications and media law side of this would love to hear more about the decision to focus on private equity and also the best guesses that you might have about the ways that those findings map onto some of those larger trends that seem to be the source of angst for so many in journalism, but would also, I would stay tuned for a piece that investigated hedge fund patterns as well would be really interesting. And particularly if we're really glomming onto the idea that the goal might be to try to find ways for the market to fill some of these gaps, knowing what's really happening and how each of these different models impacts what happens in local communities would be really helpful comparative data. Yeah, and just to, I, I agree with Ronell to add some more to our wish list of to-dos for you all. From a policymaking point of view, the more nuanced our understanding is about additional factors that might determine behavior here, in addition to the ownership by PE or hedge funds, would be helpful. So I mentioned the question of debt levels. So this was in the case of Gannett, which was the largest newspaper chain was bought by a smaller newspaper chain, Gatehouse. And as often as happens under that scenario, it was financed with a very large amount of debt. So they are under tremendous pressure to cut costs in order to pay off their debt. In addition to whatever the fundamental problems with the news industry are, they have this overriding extra factor that they have to deal with. And I am curious about that, of whether or not debt levels of acquisitions become part of this, what one would want to look at in trying to assess kinds of mergers that are problematic. And in general, even just the, one of the pages of the report that we haven't talked about is they also looked at in order to get a comparison between private equity and the norm, they looked at the norm. They looked at other models. They looked at family ownership. And getting more and more understanding in general about what types of ownership structures lead to better outcomes is really important. Like there, it basically seemed to indicate that family owned newspapers, privately owned, but family owned newspapers did better, both in terms of all of these measures of local news and financial health in, the, in my experience. So it could be that the choice is not so much policies that between private equity owned newspapers and no newspapers. It could be that you want to point public policy towards family ownership if that's what appears to be the better outcomes. Further investigation of how the various different types of ownership structures impact this could be really powerful and important. Michael, the thoughts. Thanks again, Andrew, for having us and all the feedback and comments have been really helpful and I've learned a lot. I hope folks have learned a little bit as well from our paper. These are some great ideas just mentioned in terms of looking at hedge funds, additional information about debt and the role of leverage in this and, and ownership types. I think among other unanswered questions is really the role of market fixing these problems through, let's say, startups or venture capital. So if we really believe that the news environment and media environment has changed, there's been different forms of news production and how consumers are consuming 
news, and that's not going away. Startups are well known to, to deal with these creative destruction type issues. And I think encouraging more work there and the expertise in the room, for example, to isolate, create new startups and help getting them funded could go a long way towards solving this. I think the other thing is time and data will tell whether this private equity model from the company view perspective, at least, is working. I think what's limiting in this analysis is we see the buys, we don't see the sells in most, if not all the cases. So whether they are leaving money on the table by doing this cutting of reporters and reduction in local news, is it manifesting in higher prices remains to be seen. And I think, at least on the company view side, we can say something about that once we see the returns for these private equity investors. The other thing I think just Getting back to this policy question, and this is tied to Steve's point about ownership type, I think we can understand the policy responses, if any are needed, by understanding the current state of the world ownership type, what works and what doesn't. The world is very different now. The internet and local news demand of consumers, looking at the next three or four years of data and the more recent past, and exploring family versus private versus even public, and understanding how those behave differently in this news environment and competitive landscape will really help us understand the right policy levers to pull. I'd like to thank all of our panelists for just an excellent discussion in this first episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast Symposium on Local Journalism, Business, and Society. This episode is focused on a recently posted paper, Local Journalism Under Private Equity Ownership, which was written by our panelist, Michael Ewens of Caltech, also co-authored with Arpit Gupta and Sabrina Howell of NYU Stern School of Business. Uh, we've also been joined by Renell Anderson-Jones, a law professor at the University of Utah, and Steve Waldman the president and co-founder of Report for America, Michael Ronell. Steve, thank you so much for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast and this symposium episode. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.